What's better than Anchor's podcast creation tools? Nothing. Mankind has always searched for evidence of God's perfection, and we found it. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place for free, which you can use straight from your phone or computer. The creation tools allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. They'll distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and the lesser of the podcast platforms like Stitcher. You can easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. I've made $5, and I've been doing this for three months. So, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Guys, I'll make this quick. I am on roughly four hours of sleep. Uh, I had to wake up at four in the morning to bring my daughter to her school uh, really early because they were going to go out of state on a four-hour bus ride to play in a band concert because that's what schools demand of their children now and uh, demand of me. So I'm on no sleep, which has been a lot of fun. And it's a weekday. I'm supposed to be working. Uh, but though I work from home right now, um, it's been raining for the last couple days. And my basement has started to pool up with water, which has been a lot of fun. Uh, at first, a simple mop could handle it. And then I realized so much water is pooled in different areas. And the one spot I was trying to mop up was part of a kind of runoff involving a series of canals that... Uh, I just kept mopping and mopping and mopping the same spot and it just kept filling up and filling up and uh, I finally gave up and I got a wet dry vac and sucked up all that stuff. So all day long, I've had to come down to the basement and keep wet dry vacing it. Uh, so right now, I'm sitting in the back of the basement, which I call my podcast studio, and I uh, am sweating, even though it's chilly in here. Uh, it's like a, a cold morning on a tropical island. Uh, there's a dewiness, a cold dewiness on the tips of my nose and lips. And uh, that's what I'm working with today. And also, something snapped inside me. I created this podcast with the idea that I don't care if anyone listens to it. I just enjoy making it. It's fun for me to sit down the formality of setting up and getting everything just right and having the mood lighting and the podcast area and, and all that good times. Uh, that's the fun, and that's all I was going to focus on. And then I thought to myself, uh, I should probably set up a Twitter account just to post when I have new things, if anyone were to actually follow it. And also it gives people another avenue to get a hold of me, besides email which people actually really don't use anymore. So I set up the Twitter account, and then I posted. And then I was feeling moody, and I was in the bathroom, going number two, and I thought, oh, I'll post this thing. And next thing you know, I'm posting more things into the void. No one's reading it. No one's uh, paying attention. And then I realized that they have statistics. So you can see that you posted something, and you can see how many people have scrolled past it. And then I realized, oh, I just reached 30 people on that one dumb post. And then I got obsessed. And I was like, well, 
maybe I should also be on Instagram. So I looked into that and I looked at what other podcasters are doing with their Instagram accounts. Next thing you know, I'm on Instagram. And then I thought, well, I shouldn't just cater to people that take the time to download a podcast application. I should also be posting this on YouTube. Uh. So I did. Now I'm posting my stuff on YouTube. Why? It doesn't matter. So I'm canvassing this wide area of uh, social media and other things. And uh, I'm losing sight. Um, pretty soon I'll be doing live, live tweeting of, while I'm actually reading. I will read something and you'll hear me stop and start texting or typing or whatever because I'm posting on Twitter. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I just read this one part lols I don't know so that's where I'm at right now um, I'm going corrupt also there may or may not be inappropriate content for kids or really sensitive adults it's public domain books for the most part that I'm reading so um, I think it's probably pretty safe and you should probably shouldn't worry about it but I don't read any of this stuff before I start doing the podcast so I'm kind of learning about the book as you do and uh, if anything really cool happens that's sexual in nature or involves a lot of swearing I'm going to be pretty impressed just like you and maybe your kid in the back seat have you ever listened to a LibriVox recording and thought to yourself who are these people Who's the guy with the labored breath and the cats yelling in the background that takes the time to read Anne of Green Gables to me? Uh, I found myself more focused on the individual reading the book than the actual story itself. Sitting there studying, listening for little sounds. The cars outside the window. The creaks and groans from the floor above the head of a neighbor who lives upstairs in the apartment. That is what I would like to recreate here for you with Nuzzle House Audio. I am Glenn Nuzzles. So where did we leave off in the previous chapter? Five, Philomaths. We learn that Ernest is making love to Avis now. Um, which is both violent and awkward, is how it's described. Uh, we learn that she's tired of the beardless college kids which is apparently a thing back then you were supposed to avoid. Uh, Ernest had his insanely long one-sided speech that went on for an hour. Uh, I love that the author, Jack London, master of animal books, even went so far as to inject, they responded weakly, and then he just dived back into his big speech. So there's... Something so disingenuous about not even having another side of the argument uh, just goes to show that you're probably not very good at writing a book where someone's a master of arguments if you can't show both sides. I don't know why I'm so hooked on that. It, it just bothers me. Uh, it was the longest chapter in the world. In the whole world. I learned that purpled ease is a term that was used a lot for rich people living their lives. And I looked it up later and couldn't find a definition for purple ease. So if anyone has an idea, please let me know. Uh, and obsessed with sociology, which makes sense because it's the you know science of the peoples. But uh, biology, which is weird. How groins work. Uh, and breeding. And people's nuances that th somehow plays into it. These are things from the last chapter that carried over. 
to know. Also, I learned of a website called HowToPronounce.com where they allow people to add their own pronunciations of things, which I have set myself up for. For chapter six. Let me turn on the Kindle. Ad numberations. I'm going to just say it and record myself saying it so that it's now part of howtopronounce.com's list of pronunciations. Uh, going to this page, they have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight pronunciations, and these are all from robots. Uh, robotic pronunciations of them. They're all hard to understand, so I'm just going to add my own, and um, then I'll listen to it and see if I've gotten anywhere close. So, chapter six, add numberations, and I'm going to record myself right now saying it into the mic, which is going to go into the webpage. So here we go. I had to download Flash and everything because this site is that old. Here we go. Add <clears throat> uh, <at> numberations. <laughs> Let's see if it worked. Oh, well, that sucks. I, uh, I found out that it only lets me record, and it's just for myself. So if I'm logged in, I can see my own recordings for a certain word. What's the point in that? So if I'm logged in as myself, I can see that I recorded this. <coughs> at numberations. Which means nothing. I want the people to hear my pronunciation. So that was a huge waste of time. So on to the recording. Chapter 6. Ad numberations. It was about this time that the warnings of coming events began to fall about us thick and fast. Ernest had already questioned Father's policy of having socialists and labor leaders at his house and of openly attending socialist meetings, and Father had only laughed at him for his pains. As for myself, I was learning much from this contact with the working-class leaders and thinkers. I was seeing the other side of the shield... I was delighted with the unselfishness and high idealism I encountered, though I was appalled by the vast philosophic and scientific literature of socialism that was opened up to me. I was learning fast, but I learned not fast enough to realize then the peril of our position. There were warnings, but I did not heed them. For instance, Mrs. Pertonwaith and Mrs. Wickerson exercised tremendous social power at the university town, and from them emanated the sentiment that I was too forward and self-assertive young woman with a mischievous penchant for offensiveness and interference in other persons' affairs. This is going to upset all the beardless boys that she wants to date. This I thought no more than natural, considering the part I had played in investigating the case of Jackson's arm. But the effect of such a sentiment, enunciated by two such powerful social arbitrators, I underestimated. True, I noticed a certain aloofness on the part of my general friends, but this I ascribed to the disapproval that was prevalent in my circles of my intended marriage with Ernest. Oh, she's getting married already. Holy poop. It was not till some time afterward that Ernest pointed out to me clearly that this general attitude of my class 
was something more than spontaneous. That behind it were the hidden springs of an organized conduct. Yes, I'm having this beverage during working hours. Technically, no one cares if I'm working right now. I'm uh, off the clock. You have given shelter to an enemy of your class, he said. And not alone, shelter. For you have given your love yourself. This is treason to your class. Think not that you will escape being penalized. But it was before this that father returned one afternoon. Ernest was with me because Ernest is always around the house. Because he's got like no home of his own or a job. And we could see that father was angry. Philosophically angry. He was rarely really angry. But a certain measure of controlled anger he allowed himself. He called it a tonic. That's a way of describing your anger issues. And we could see that he was tonic angry when he entered the room. What do you think? He demanded. I had a luncheon with Wilcox. Wilcox was the super unannuated president of the university whose withered mind was stored with generalizations that were young in 1870. Oh, ouch. And which he had since failed to revise. I was invited, father announced. I was sent for. He paused and we waited. Oh, it was done very nicely. I'll allow, but I was reprimanded. I, exclamation point, and by that old fossil, exclamation point, I'll wager I know what you were reprimanded for, Ernest said, sitting around the house eating his Cheetos. Not in three guesses, father laughed. Uh, One guess will do, Ernest retorted, and I'm sure he's going to have the exact right guess because he's perfect all the time. And it won't be a guess. It will be a deduction. You were reprimanded for your private life. The very thing, father cried. How did you guess? I knew it was coming. I warned you before about it because everything I say is perfect. Yes, you did, father mediated. But I couldn't believe it. At any rate, it was only so much more clinching evidence for my book. Oh, he's writing a book. It is nothing to what will come, Ernest went on, if you persist in your policy of having these socialists and radicals of all sorts at your house, myself included, he said, putting his feet up on his coffee table. Just what old Wilcox said, and all, oh, of all unwarranted things, exclamation point. He said it was in poor taste, utterly profitless. Anyway and not in harmony with university traditions and policy. He said much more of the same vague sort, and I couldn't pin him down to anything specific. I made it pretty awkward for him, and he could only go on repeating himself and telling me how much he honored me and and all the world honored me as a scientist. It wasn't an agreeable task for him. I could see he didn't like it. He was not a free agent, that's a catchphrase Ernest is really doing. Ernest said, The leg bar is not always worn graciously. Can I click leg bar and actually get a description on that? No. Leg bar. Come on. Eh. I'm trying to see if I can get leg bar to show up. 
No results on Wikipedia. No translation. No dictionary. All right, fine. Well, whatever the leg bar is. It's not always worn graciously. I'm going to go with metal cast. Yes, I got that much out of him. He said the university needed ever so much more money this year than the state was willing to furnish, and that it must come from wealthy personages who could not but be offended by the swerving of the university from its high ideal of the passionless pursuit of passionless intelligence. When I tried to pin him down to what my home life had to do with the swerving the university from its high ideal, uh, he offered me a two years vacation on full pay in Europe for recreation and research. Of course, I couldn't accept it under the circumstances. It would have been far better if you had, Ernest said gravely. It was a bribe, Father protested, and Ernest nodded. Also, the beggar said that there was talk, tea table gossip, and, and so forth, about my daughter being seen in public with so notorious a character as you, and that it was not in keeping with the university tone and dignity. It's weird that college plays such a huge part in these people's lives. It was a different era back then. Because now if a bunch of people at your college had stuff to say about you, you just wouldn't care. Not that he personally objected, oh, no, but that there was talk and that I would understand. Ernest considered this announcement for a moment and, and then said his, his face was very grave. Withal, there was a somber wrath in it. There is more behind this than a mere university ideal. Somebody has put pressure on President Wilcox. Do you think so? Father asked, and his face showed that he was interested rather than frightened. I wish I could convey to you the conception that is dimly forming in my own mind. His vast, perfect mind. Ernest said, never in the history of the world was society in so terrific flux as it is right now. The swift changes in our industrial system are causing equally swift changes in our religious and political and social structures. And... Unseen and fearful revolution is taking place in the fiber and structure of society. One can only dimly feel these things, but they are in the air now, today. One can feel the loom of them, things vast, vague, and terrible. My mind recoils from contemplation of what they may crystallize into. You heard Wixen talk the other night. Behind what he said, there were the same nameless, formless things that I feel. He spoke of the superconscious apprehension of them. You mean... Dot, dot, dot. Question mark. Father began, then paused. I mean that there is a shadow of something colossal and menacing that even now is beginning to fall across the land. Call it the shadow of an oligarchy, if you will. It is the nearest I dare approximate it. What its nature may be, I refuse to imagine, but what I want to say was this. You are in a perilous position, a peril that my own fear enhances because I am not able to measure it. Take my advice and accept the vacation. But it would be cowardly, was the protest. Not at all. You are an old man. You have done your work in the world and a great work. Leave the present battle to youth and strength. We young fellows in our work, oh, have our work yet to do. Avis 
will stand by my side in what is to come. She will be your representative in the battle front. But they can't hurt me, Father objected. Thank God I am independent. Oh, I assure you, I know the frightful persecution they can wage on a professor who is economically dependent on his university. Oh, that's right, I forgot he's a professor, and that's why the college matters so much. But I am independent. I have not been a professor for the sake of my salary. I can get along very comfortably on my own income. And the salary is all they can take away from me. But you do not realize, Ernest said perfectly, answered. If all that I fear be so, your private income, your principal itself, can be taken from you just as easily as your salary. Father was silent for a few minutes. Ooh, that's money, his word hits hard. He was thinking deeply, and I could see the lines of decision forming on his face. At last he spoke. I shall not take the vacation, he paused again. I shall go on with my book. You may be wrong, but whether you are wrong or right, I shall stand by my guns. All right, Ernest said. You are traveling the same path that Bishop Morehouse is and toward a similar smash-up. You'll both be proletarians before you're done with it. The conversation turned upon the bishop. And we got Ernest to explain what he had been doing with them. He is soul-sick from the journey through hell I have given him. I took him through the homes of a few of our factory workers. I showed him the human wrecks cast aside by the industrial machine, and he listened to their life stories. I took him through the slums of San Francisco, and in drunkenness, prostitution, and criminality, he learned a... the priest did all those things? He learned a deeper cause and innate depravity. He is very sick. And, worse than that, he got out of hand. He's too ethical. He has been too severely touched. And, as usual, he is unpractical. He is up in the air with all kinds of ethical delusions and plans for mission work among the cultured. He feels it is his burden, oh, his bounden duty to resurrect the ancient spirit of the church and to deliver its message to the masters. He is overwrought. Sooner or later, he is going to break out. And then there's going to be a smash-up. What does he mean by smash-up? What form it will take, I can't even guess. He is a pure, exalted soul. But he is so unpractical. He is beyond me. I can't keep his feet on the earth. And through the air, he is rushing onto his Gethsemane. And after this, his crucifixion. Such high souls are made for crucifixion. And you, I asked. Oh, she's worried about him being nailed up like the Jesus that he is. I asked, and beneath my smile was the seriousness of the anxiety of love. Not I, he laughed back. I may be executed or assassinated, he says casually, but I shall never be crucified. I am planted too solidly and stolidly upon the earth. But why would you... Bring about the crucifixion of the bishop, I asked. You will not deny that you are the cause of it. Why should I leave one comfortable soul in comfort when there are millions in travail and misery, he demanded back. Then, why'd you advise Father to accept the vacation? Because I am not a pure, exalted soul, was the answer. Because I 
am solid and stolid and selfish, because I love you, and, like Ruth of old, thy people are my people. As for the bishop, he has no daughter for him to date. Besides, no matter how small a good, nevertheless, his little inadequate wail will be productive of some good in the revolution, and every little bit counts. I cannot agree with Ernest. I knew well the noble nature of Bishop Morehouse, and I could not conceive that his voice raised for righteousness would be no more than a little inadequate wail. But I did not yet have the harsh facts of life at my fingers. Ends as Ernest had. Oh, his, her fingers ends as Ernest had. All right. He saw clearly the futility of the bishop's great soul as coming events were soon to show as clearly to me. It was shortly after this day that Ernest told me, as a good story, the offer he had received from the government, namely an appointment as United States Commissioner of Labor. Uh, I was overjoyed. The salary was comparatively large and would make safe our marriage. And then it surely was congenial work for Ernest. And furthermore, my jealous pride in him made me hail the preferred appointment as a recognition of his abilities. Then I noticed the twinkle in his eyes. He was laughing at me. You're not going to... To decline, I quavered. It is a bribe, he said. Behind it is the fine hand of Wixen, and behind him stand uh, the hands of greater men than he. It is an old trick, old as the class struggle is old. He's always just, all right, stealing the captains from the army of labor, poor and betrayed labor. But if you knew how many of its leaders have been brought out in similar ways in the past, it's cheaper, so much cheaper, to buy a general than to fight him and his whole army. There was, but I'll not call any names. I'm bitter enough over it as it is. Dear heart, I'm sorry, I was like going back, there was, with an M-dash, but I'll not call any names, period. I'm bitter enough over it as it is, period. Dear heart, comma, I am captain of labor, period. So there was... Are they going to go back to that? That's what I got caught up on. I could not sell out. If for no other reason, the memory of my poor old father and the way he was worked to death would prevent. The tears were in his eyes. This great, strong hero of mine, he never could forgive the way his father had been malformed. The sordid lies and the petty thefts he had been compelled to in order to put food in his children's mouths. My father was a good man, Ernest once said to me. The soul of him was good, and yet it was twisted and maimed and blunted by the savagery of his life. He was made into a broken-down beast by his masters, the archbeasts. He should be alive today, like your father." He had a strong constitution, but he was caught in the machine and worked to death for profit. Think of it. For profit. His lifeblood transmuted into a wine supper or a jeweled jew jaw. Gugaw. Well, now I gotta look that one up. It's 
G-E-W-G-A-W. Guga? Here we go. Guga. 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 Okay, Guga. His lifeblood transmuted into a wine supper or a jeweled Guga or some similar sense orgy of the parasitic and idle rich, his masters, the arch beasts. Guys, what did we learn today in chapter six? The enumerations. We learned that howtopronounce.com is a crap website. I wanted to add to a pool of pronunciations that the world would hear, or the 12 people that actually stumbled across that website. They made me go through the process of creating an account. They made me go through the process of downloading the Flash plugin, which I haven't done since 2006. And I recorded myself, only so that I can hear myself later if I want when I do a search for that word again in the future. Worthless. We learned that Ernest was given a job to sell out. In all of his youth, he has deeply, personally experienced a history of the capitalists and the fat cats trying to buy off a captain to quell an army. And he refuses to do it. Avis's dad was told to go on vacation. And eh, take a vacation. I forgot that he was a, <clears throat> a professor. So uh, college life means a lot to them. Means a lot to them. The opinions of 19 and 20 year olds affects their career. And that's a dignified profession to have. It's not embarrassing at all. And... He didn't want to go on vacation until Ernest said, What about the money? And he thought about it and said, No, my book is too important. Which is weird. He's just going to write a book about this stuff instead of being involved in it. Uh, no one's really a hero here. Avis has friends that aren't nice to her anymore. Uh, and that she's probably suffering more than anybody else in this story. The poor kid. We also learned about the uh, the Guga, which uh, I forgot to say. Uh, the definition of Guga is a showy trifle, a pretty uh, a, a pretty thing of little worth, a toy, a bauble, a gaudy plaything or ornament. So we've learned a lot today. Also, I'm learning about the delayed effects of loss. I miss Pete. I miss him with all my heart. I wish he wasn't so ugly. I wish he wasn't a spider with all the eyes and the little mandibles and, and all the legs and how fast he runs. I was thinking about hanging up a picture of Pete on the wall, which I will not print up a picture from the internet of a spider because that is disgusting. I will draw a little stick figure uh, uh, spider and hang it on the wall next to me and I could talk to it like Wilson uh, from that island movie by America's favorite actor Tom Hanks but uh, there's a possibility that a friend of mine that I've worked with a long time ago may come to visit 
and he will sit here in my basement studio, and uh, he can be my sidekick, at least for one episode, until I can find something better, something more permanent. So I hope you enjoyed the episode, and I hope to see you again soon. Thank you.